I think if we were honest with each other, we would probably all agree that grace is a concept that's hard to get our heads around. In our human nature, we just naturally prefer a more logical approach. We, we see that very clearly with the counsel that Job received from his friends. Remember that, right? Because Job was going through so much difficulty and having so much trouble and tragedy in his life, they concluded that there must be an issue of sin in Job's life. It's a very logical, simple explanation of bad people. In our human understanding, that makes logical sense. But grace actually says just the opposite. It says that we don't actually get what we actually deserve, that good things actually happen to inherently bad people. And this is hard for us to grasp in our human understanding. And so Paul is going to help explain that to us this morning by looking at the life of Abraham. And choosing Abraham was very intentional because the general opinion of the Jewish audience at that time was that Abraham was justified by his good works, that he earned God's favor because of his faithful obedience. In fact, in Jewish writings, even today, they say that Abraham fulfilled the law in its completion before the law was ever written. And since Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation, then that would only mean what applies to him must also apply to them. And Paul would actually agree with that point, but not in consistency with the original uh, traditional understanding. And I'll explain what I mean. Turn to Romans chapter 4, if you would. Romans chapter 4, and let's look at this together, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes and says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul first identifies Abraham as our forefather according to the flesh. In some ways, this is kind of a, a statement of the obvious, isn't it? Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. All the Jewish people come from his lineage as direct descendants. But I also think there might be a clue hidden in this clarification that Paul gives here in verse 1. The Jews were Abraham's descendants according to the flesh, but this implies that there may be others who are related to Abraham, but in a different way. And so I want you to hold on to that thought because it'll come up later in our passage. But for now, let's take it at face value, okay? The Jews are direct descendants of Abraham, and they believe that he was justified by works. And knowing that, Paul looks at them and says, well, if he's been justified by works, then he definitely has something to boast about, but not before God. Because God has a different perspective on this. It was God who inspired the words that are written in Genesis chapter 15 when he said that when Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. 
And, and since that's the heart of his argument, he mentioned it last week. He'll bring it up a couple of times in our passage this morning. Let's look at that together. So go to Genesis chapter 15, if you would. Genesis chapter 15. And let's look at this verse that he just quoted in its content, context. So Genesis chapter 15, if you want to begin reading with me in verse 1. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram, Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body. You, He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham was in the land of promise for many years by this point in time, and it hadn't been easy. In fact, what immediately precedes Genesis 15 is the story of Abraham going to war in order to rescue his nephew Lot. And before that ever happened, he had to endure a famine and go to Egypt in order to find refuge. But most disheartening to Abraham in the midst of all this is the fact that he had no heir. The only one that he had would be an inheritance passed down to a servant from Damascus. This is significant because if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, God had promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation. But at this point, Abraham's not the father of anyone. He has no children at all. But in this passage, God reinforces that promise made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 by telling him it will happen in time. He says, your descendants will be as innumerable as the stars in heaven. Now, given the current circumstances, that would be really hard to imagine because Abraham is already old and his wife is clearly barren. So how's that going to happen? But verse 6 tells us that when Abraham heard this promise, he believed in the Lord. What that tells us is that he believed that God had the power to fulfill that promise and he had the integrity to keep his word. And, and in that moment, Abraham's doubt that he expressed before the Lord was then replaced with faith. Now, what's interesting is right after this exchange, God seals that promise with a covenant. Now, the covenant that was practiced during that time was very traditional. And what they would do is they would take a sacrifice, usually several animals, and they would split them in half. And they would put one on one side and one on the other, creating kind of a lane in between them. And typically what would happen is that the two parties involved in that covenant promise would walk through the sacrifices together. 
essentially saying to one another, this would be the covenant, may it happen to me as has happened to these animals if I don't keep my end of this promise to you. But here's what's interesting about what took place with Abraham that day. Only God passed through the sacrifices. Not two people, but one person. A unilateral promise being made by God, essentially saying this, may it happen to me as has happened to these animals if you don't keep your promise to me. So God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham believed that promise. And that promise was sealed with a covenant, a unilateral, unconditional covenant made by God. Paul is saying Abraham cannot boast about his righteousness because it was something he received by God, not something that he earned from God. He goes on to explain in verse 4 of our passage. Let's look at that together. Beginning in verse 4, it says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. When he says, blessed are those who whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Paul's argument is really simple here as he begins. He says, if you do the work, you expect a wage. We might say, if you have a job, you expect a paycheck, right? You want to be compensated for the work that you do. Nobody works for free. You couldn't survive if you worked for free. But on the other hand, if something was credited to you, it must be received as a gift. You don't pay for gifts. You graciously receive gifts. If you try to pay for a gift, then it's no longer a gift. It's a purchase, likely with the wages you've earned. But God said Abraham's righteousness was credited to him. It was a gift, not a wage. He believed in the Lord's promise. And it was credited to him as righteousness. By faith, he accepted the gift of God's promise. But notice in verse 5 how Paul says that this is a gift to the ungodly. Let's look at that again, verse 5. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who, here it is, justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So maybe Abraham wasn't as perfect as the people thought he was because God justifies the ungodly. And he goes on to use David as an example by quoting the first two verses of Psalm 32, which is a psalm of confession. Because as we know, David coveted another man's wife. Dave had adultery with that woman, and then he committed murder by killing that woman's husband in order to cover his sin. David was most certainly ungodly in those sinful decisions and he knew it. David understands that there is no provision in the law, 
anywhere. You can look for it. You won't find it. There is no provision in the law that lets a man like that go free. In fact, he's condemned by the law, which is why he casts himself upon the mercy of God. He knows, and get this, he knows his only hope for redemption is the gift of God's gracious forgiveness. And the same is true for you and I. You see, Paul is making the point that Abraham's obedience was imperfect. Even more so, King David. And yet, when they turned to God in faith, each of them received the gift of God's grace. They didn't earn it. In fact, they didn't even deserve it. They were made righteous as a gift of God's grace on the basis of faith. And I understand that doesn't make any logical sense to our human understanding, but you need to understand it is a clear biblical truth. Let's look at how it continues in verse 9. It says in verse 9, Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also. For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. See, the question at this point actually goes back to that clue hidden in verse 1. He asks, does this gift of righteousness only apply to Abraham's direct descendants? those who are related to him according to the flesh. And Paul answers that by looking at what makes a Jew a Jew. Circumcision. In fact, the rite of circumcision was so significant that God said everyone who is not circumcised is to be expelled from the Jewish community. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 14, it says, but an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of the foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. Here's why. He has broken my covenant. Now, the Jews would in time extrapolate that statement to a logical conclusion. Okay, And it goes like this. If uncircumcision can condemn a man then circumcision must save him. You see that? That's how someone's made righteous. We see that idea being carried over into the New Testament when the Judaizers were saying, sure, you can be a Christian, but only if you're Jewish. That's the only way that you can have true faith in God is to be circumcised and then believe. But Paul takes a step back and he says, well, wait a second, let's think about this for a minute. Because 
Abraham was declared righteous, get this, 15 years before he was circumcised. So technically, Abraham was more Gentile than Jew when he received the gift of grace. Paul says his circumcision was only a seal of his pre-existing righteousness. Now, in that day, a seal was a mark of validation. So, for example, if someone wrote a letter, there would be a seal that marked that person's identity. That letter was authenticated by that seal. And so, in the same way, Abraham was circumcised as an authentication, a seal of his pre-existing faith. Paul says that's what makes Abraham the father of all who believe, both the circumcised and the uncircumcised. That's how his descendants became as innumerable as the stars in heaven. Because everyone who follows his example of faith will receive the same gift of righteousness. Both his relatives according to the flesh but also those who are related to him in a different way, according to faith. But remember, this is not something like Abraham and David, not something that we deserve. We too are ungodly. We cannot earn God's favor because our sin has already earned God's wrath. So any righteousness that we receive in the very same way, is a gift of God's grace, a gift we receive because we believe that Jesus ultimately fulfilled the promise of God. We are made righteous through the forgiveness of the cross. In fact, if you write in your Bible, I would encourage you to go back to verse 9, where it says, for we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And right above Abraham, just write your name. So for me, it would say, faith was credited to Todd as righteousness. Because that's what Paul is saying. That's how we are related to Abraham as one of his descendants. And all of his descendants are made righteous through the promise fulfilled through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Make sense? Let's continue in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. Paul says we've been made righteous by faith, we are held secure by faith, and now he says we receive the promised inheritance by faith. He starts by identifying that promise to Abraham who would be an heir to the world. And this is referring back to Genesis chapter 12 when it said he would be the father of all the nations. All the families of the world, of the earth, would be blessed through him. 
A promise that was made well before the law. In fact, Paul speaks to this in more detail in Genesis chapter, or excuse me, Galatians chapter 3, verse 17. And listen to what he says here. Paul writing says, What I'm saying is this the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified. By God. And let me just point out here the covenant he's talking about is that covenant that I described to you that God made with Abraham. So let me say that again. What I'm saying is this the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So we talked about that earlier, the covenant promise that God made when He alone walked through that sacrifice, a a unilateral, unconditional covenant. And, And what Paul is saying here is that took place some 430 years before the law even existed, which means the inheritance was through the promise, not through the law. In fact, Paul says that relying on the law for righteousness invalidates the promise being made by God received through faith. You simply can't have both. You have to choose. You will either rely on God's promise or you will rely on God's law. But let it be known, if you rely on God's law, you will only earn God's wrath not his righteousness. The reason we know that's true is because because James 2.10 says, whoever relies on the law, okay, that's the choice, yet stumbles in just one point, is guilty of it all. So if you live by the law, you must receive the condemnation of the law against your sin. Because 1 John 1.8 goes on and says, if you say you have no sin... You're deceiving yourself, and the truth is not in you. So clearly, that's a dead-end road. The only way to be righteous is to rely on God's promise. Not ignoring our sin, but confessing our sin and crying out to God for His grace and mercy that He freely bestows upon those who have a repentant heart. We know that because of the verse that follows 1 John 1.8, 1 John 1.9. What does it say? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And when it says that he is faithful, what it's meaning is that he is faithful to his promise. A promise made to Abraham and everyone who follows his example of faith. We are made righteous, not because of anything we've done for God, but because of everything that God has done for us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we need to understand, Abraham's faith wasn't perfect, neither is ours. In fact, if you go back to that scene where Abraham made this covenant promise with God, it wasn't too long after that that Abraham took things into his own hands, and had a child with his maidservant, Hagar. He felt like God probably needed his help. 
And he was wrong. God did not need his help. And yet, the weakness of his faith did not invalidate the strength of God's promise. Because you remember, God said, may it be done to me as has been done to these animals if you don't keep your promise to me. That covenant was ultimately fulfilled when Jesus made his sacrifice on the cross. When Jesus died for our sins. He died because, get this, we, you and I, are incapable of keeping our promise to God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, and by nature, according to Scripture, children of wrath. Our only hope for redemption is like David if we cry out for the grace and mercy of God. But we need to understand it doesn't end there. It doesn't end when we cry out for the grace and mercy of God by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's important. But it's not as if that's where grace applies and then we're done with it. Because grace continues through the rest of our life, day after day after day. Why? Because we still make mistakes, right? Our faith is not perfect. But here's the key. Christ's sacrifice is. One sacrifice for all sin, for all time, for all who believe. Which is why we never, ever, ever Stop relying on God's grace. We are saved by God's grace. We stand firm in God's grace. And I get it. It's hard to get our head around God's grace. But grace ultimately is the basis of our belief. It is receiving a gift that we do not deserve over and over and over again. Trusting that we as sinners are made righteous because of the divine promise that was perfectly fulfilled by Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. We are made righteous by faith. We are held secure by faith. And we receive the promise inheritance by faith. Here's one, a, a simple little exercise that I want to encourage you to do this week just to help this sink in, okay? I want you to look at our passage in Romans chapter 4. Put your finger there and then flip over to Psalm 111, okay? You don't have to do that now. Just remember this, okay? But here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to first read Romans chapter 4. And then I want you to go to Psalm 111. <laughs> and get this. I want you to see the beauty of the promise fulfilled in Romans chapter 4 and let it fuel the praise of Psalm 111. Because you're going to see how the two are deeply connected to each other. God is faithful to his promise even when we are not. That's grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the promise of your grace. I mean, 
where would we be without it? Well, we know where we would be, dead in our trespasses and sins, but we have been made alive together with Christ through faith. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that anyone can boast, not Abraham, not me, not anyone. You've been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Father, it really doesn't make any logical sense that those who deserve nothing receive everything in you. Thank you for that gift. We receive it with deep gratitude. Amen. If you would, stand. Let's sing together. There's a lot of sinking sand in our world today, isn't there? And man, we're fixing to head into a week of uncertainty. Because no matter who our next president is, everybody's wondering what life is going to look like on the other side of it. Lots of uncertainty. But I hope and I pray that based on what we walk through this morning, that as a child of God, there is no uncertainty about who you are in him and what he's accomplished for you. Your inheritance, your future, sealed. So rest in that assurance as you head into this next week and whatever life looks like ahead of us. Amen? Have a great day.